2: Welcome to three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. First round Roland Garros 2021 in the books. Nine sets won, zero sets lost for the big three. All advancing to the second round, Novak Djokovic over Tennis Sandgren, Rafael Nadal over Alexey Poprin, and Roger Federer over Dennis Istomin. Let's start with Federer. This was the one that I think people were most intrigued with just because he was uh, one and two on the season was Roger. But I think universally, Federer's level impressed was quite dazzling, Amy.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I tweeted shortly before his match that Roger had to be feeling pretty good because Andujar beat team. And that was the last guy that Roger had lost to at the Geneva Open. Well, it's kind of like, you know, if you're following the NBA and your team loses, but then the team that your team lost to goes on to win the championship, you feel better, right? Um, So, uh, sure enough, no sooner had I tweeted that, that he had to be feeling better after that brilliant performance, that he tweeted some skippy happy tweet about, you know, a bunny or something. And, And I thought, wow, this bodes well. And when I saw the match, I saw his movement, he looks great. I mean, he was—he had all the shots. He could drop shot. He could serve in volley. His forehand looked good. He looked like Roger of old, very spry.
0: And it's neat to see a player, you know, his least favorite surface, the one where he's only won it and got to the finals four other times. But it's <laughs> always fun to see a player on his less advantaged surface showing his stuff, too. It reminds me when I'd see Nadal on grass. But you see Federer just how richly he plays and he brought out a whole bunch of things against uh, against Istomin. Istomin a guy who beat Novak several years ago in Australia and kind of a veteran, somewhat solid, but again Federer just he just dissects people. I mean, he doesn't need to clobber them because that's not his game. So it, it Istomin becomes like I've said this before, kind of a witness watching himself get kind of entranced by the Roger Webb and it was really fun to see and to see it at Roland Garros. I mean, Federer You know, moving on the clay and and looking balanced and diverse. And like you said, the drop shots, the volleys, the serve, uh, looking pretty snappy in his uh, outfit as always. Just really nice, nice start.
2: Yeah, I I like that you said uh, Istaman was a witness. It it felt that way. And as a result, you know, Dennis is a steady player. He doesn't serve that big. They're going to play some points. Estiman's not going to be too aggressive. He gave Federer this blank canvas, I thought, to to yeah. do his work on. And Roger said after the match that he felt like he had so many options. He could drop shot, he could serve volley. The the highlight reel he put together was was amazing. And just before I I finish, I want to rewind to the first point you made, Amy, about Anduhar beating team. The same thing happened in Doha. Basilashvili beat Federer. And at the time, it, it looked like a pretty bad loss. But Vili went on to win the title. So now both of Federer's losses, they're looking like, well, how bad were those? You know, it was one and two. Everyone was panicking, but maybe they weren't so bad. And how much confidence would be, my next question did, does the uh, does the Istiman win? Um, give you guys about Federer's prospects moving forward
1: in the post-match interview Gil the, his biggest concern seemed to be the towels and if that's <laughs> his biggest problem he's probably in pretty good shape um yeah he you know he said he was just getting used to the timing and things are different now and the um Pandemic, post pandemic era where uh, some changes have been made. And um, as Joel and I were talking about earlier, <clears throat> Roger's not really a guy who likes change.
0: Yeah. Why should you like change if you are already occupying the power? Why do you want to? Why change? You're, he's the establishment. And also, I think Feder. I mean, moving forward, he next plays Marin Cilic, And so that's a little bit like, uh, seems like old times. That's a guy he's nine and one against. And he's familiar. So that's not too threatening. Maybe it could be. But I think, I think Fetter feels familiar. It was interesting that what you said, Gil, about him propelling people to greater things. It's the opposite of what happens when someone beats Nadal. When someone beats Nadal, they're often so worn out that they just kind of don't have more. With Fetter, mm-hmm. wow, I, I, I beat Roger. But again, I mean, playing fetter is not as physical as playing Nadal. It's something else. You become a witness to it. Oh, yeah, I just happened to occupy the museum with him and I'll be able yeah. to tell my grandchildren I got to play against Roger Federer.
2: It was so fascinating, the the whole towel thing. And it, Roger, I love that, he, you know, he doesn't like change and he was off the tour. And then he comes back and things are different. And wait, the ball kids don't give me the towels now. And the crowd isn't here and my family's not here. And wait, there's a serve clock. Whoa, what what's happening here? And it, it muddied his head. I mean, as su- the more he gets used to that, the better he's going to get. Um, but my biggest concern is: is he is he fit enough to play a physical best of five match on clay? Because he seems to be getting the rhythms down now of of um, you know those pandemic related changes to the sport.
1: We does anyone know-, know his body as well as he does? I mean, I, you just would he be here if he couldn't?
2: Well. He did not play any tournaments until Geneva, Ivan Lubacic said. He's not quite fit enough to do, to do so yet. So I don't know if you get to 100% that, you know, when, when you just weren't ready to play not too long ago. But Joel just said, you don't know, and it's true. I don't know.
0: Well, look, and also he's even spoken repeatedly about how he's kind of set the bar in a different way at Roland Garros. He's talking about Wimbledon even during Roland Garros in a way that they were the opposite that he wouldn't he knows that this is just kind of mostly he wants to leave here healthy. That's what he mostly wants to do. And so he can play matches and see what happens. And of course, of course, if you're that accomplished, you still think, hey, maybe God, maybe I I, I could win it. If Bill Mickelson showed me anything, it's like I could still even win Roland Garros. But most of all, I want to leave here healthy and sound for Wimbledon. That's what matters most to him. So And I guess knowledge of the body, I mean, we should all be so lucky that we should be like cars and have these little, you know, needles and things in ourselves that say exactly how much capacity we have left. What'll
1: be interesting, you guys, is, you know, Roger likes a little bit of a crowd, right? Um, And the match that I just watched, the Djokovic-Sangren match, I mean, you could hear a pin drop the the camera clicking was bothering sangren in that match there was nobody there it was like a cavern it was terrible actually because of the curfew um it'll be interesting to see if roger gets scheduled for any matches like that
2: amy it was terrible because you got used to it with the crowd right you weren't saying it was terrible when we were covering new york and it was the same way it's just we we now have this before and after comparison before curfew and after curfew. And I agree with you. It is pretty awful after.
1: Yeah. What did you uh, think, Joel, what did you think about that match?
0: About about the Novak match? Yeah. For the crowd energy. Yeah. The crowd energy. It is strange. It was strange being, seeing a empty chatrier. And and this is not how they wanted to debut night play when they originally wanted to put it on the books. I mean, you could just imagine... The energy of no matter who's playing and a french crowd at night and then you got this curfew yeah it was definitely it was definitely strange it'll be interesting to see what happens if there's a dramatic match there i mean so far these night matches we've seen just some pretty routine efforts serena williams and then uh novak but yeah it was strange and you could see Sandgren was a little obviously more perturbed by the novak uh yeah it's interesting it's very interesting
2: he was perturbed by uh, the scoreboard as well. Uh, we'll get to <laughs> Rafa's match in a moment, but uh, we'll start with, with Djokovic-Sandgren since we're already on that path. Um, we've, I, I feel like we've talked about Djokovic-Sandgren matches before, but yes. Joel, how, how would you assess the way Sandgren tests Novak or doesn't test Novak?
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. you know, I have, I, I felt that way too, and I wrote, I covered this match, and I thought, and then I looked at the head-to-head. You know, I think I may have watched every all four matches they played for various reasons, and it's, it's really, it's really like Novak is a Mercedes. He's this, he is so well tuned, the chassis, the body, all these parts are right in order, and and Sandgren, he hustles, he's fit, he's worked hard to give himself a career but he just, uh, I don't know what his real plan is based on his skill set, how he's going to apply pressure to Novak, what he's really going to do. He's not going to hit 40 aces. He's not going to hit 50 winners. And again, you really see the limits of your um, innovation and skills when you come up against a better player, particularly a much better player, you know, and and what do you do? What do you think, what are you going to do to try to win points? And I hand it, Sandgren for hustling and looking to do some things and trying some drop shots, but you watch these shots. Don't always have quite enough depth not quite enough accuracy. And so after a while, Novak just goes, okay, I'm comfortable here. I'm comfortable here. And he just keeps applying pressure. And uh, Novak six of six on when he held break points against Sandgren, he uh, six of 11, I'm sorry. Six of 11 wins against Sandgren. And then when Sandgren had break points, he lost all six. He never won a break point against Novak. So he never broke Novak's serve. So it's just – it's not a it's – it's a bad matchup for Sandgren. You, you, look, this is a guy who had seven match points against Federer in Australia in 2020. That's a matchup that might give a little better shot. It's A guy with a one-handed backhand, someone who uh, – who knows?
1: I know that that Sangren has taken a set off of Novak at like the US Open, he plays him better on hard courts. And what occurred to me when I was watching them play on clay and and how it wasn't even close is what a great uh, clay court player Djokovic is. And you know, we forget that sometimes because Nadal has gobbled up all the RG titles, but Novak is in many ways made for clay. I mean, uh, he's he's a great defender. Um, he will bother you by extending the rally, ad infinitum. So um, I, I thought that the surface um, really highlighted the gap between the talent level of the two players.
0: Oh, no question, Sangren's in the American grain. He he's got the heart or thing where he knows how to. Generate certain pace off a certain kind of bounce and for a certain kind of rally and kind of slash and hit some shots that are kind of big and earn him some points and he can and, and he can sometimes serve well but I think Sangren is um, he wouldn't call himself the most polished technical player and Novak is about as polished as anyone who's ever held a racket so it just becomes the, the assets of Sangren become minimized and Novak is just he's just purring right down the highway through every one of those points. And you just see after a while, Sandra's not really going to hurt him. Yeah, and he's just not going to, particularly on clay.
2: Yep. Uh, the the firepower isn't there. To your point, Amy, Novak's movement is court coverage. There's no way Sandgren can really hit through it on a consistent basis. But what really impressed me most about Djokovic's performance, which I thought was superb, was uh, the way he played the, the first strike tennis that is sometimes lacked and was probably lacked a little bit against Nadal in the final last year, which is just the first forehand. And Sangren was kind of blocking his return. There wasn't enough quality. There wasn't enough depth. But but Djokovic really ate it up and took control of the point with his first forehands and won 86% of his first serve points. I thought that was great.
0: Well, Novak, what he needs to do, when you're a top seed and you're playing an opening round match against someone who you're likely to beat the question is, am I doing the things that are going to help me eventually win the tournament? Am I doing the things that down the road I need to keep doing? So it's not always just a matter of how do I beat this guy today, but how do I run the plays that are going to help me tomorrow as they come up against tougher players, such as the Pablo Cuevas, who's going to be a much more of a trickier opponent for Novak than Sandgren.
2: Yeah. He looked like a guy and we'll hit on all of the second round matches uh, quickly at the end, didn't Djokovic look like a guy who's who's been training in Paris and had the timing and the conditions down? That was my main concern. Is I, I look, we saw Sebastian Corda, who just won Parma, lost the first round straight sets after winning the title in Parma, playing the week before, going deep the week before a major. It's not something that is generally advisable. And that was the the only sliver of concern that there may have been for Novak Djokovic. But what did he do in this match? He hit the ground running. Not for a moment did it look like he wasn't used to that kind of clay. He wasn't sliding right. He was off balance. His timing wasn't right. I mean, it was, uh, it was a fine-tuned version of Novak, which I think is impressive because he really hasn't been in Paris this long, uh, too long. And he's, uh, I think, probably had just maybe two, maybe three days to practice on the uh, Roland Garros clay
1: and and Rublev went out today. I mean, I think some of the younger guys are they're just showing that they're not necessarily built for best of 5 um or to contend with the the big 3, the big 2, whatever you want to call it. It's like the seas are parting for the big 3.
0: Well, the yet the, the better players I mean, in tennis, it's an individual sport. And these people, uh, Rublev, Korda, different ages, but still quite, quite young. And the experience factor and also the, the technical aspects. I remember a coach told me, you know, the great players in Novak did this. They they win a tournament, in Novak's case, on a Saturday. They get on an airplane and they show up to the next place. And they win on Tuesday because because of their skills. And, and they're really dialed in. And they also all... I think we talked about this before with rituals. Oh, we talked about this with Novak in Australia. All the ritual things that comprise preparation lead to good things for the really better players. Like so there isn't any questioning of ritual, of practice routine, of food. You know, they, they have I mean, and Novak has got this stuff down better than like a lot of corporate CEOs. I mean, whether it's what am I eating when, how am I doing this? So so nothing is kind of jarring him. What does I think someone like Korda, though he had a nice little run last year at Roland Garros is like oh wow I just won a tournament oh wow here I am I mean it's still kind of right-eyed <laughs> but that doesn't always compel sustainable performance because now you're riding a wave of excitement and energy Novak it's just business as usual so we won a tournament on Saturday yeah okay I want a tournament now I go yeah. play another
2: one he was uh, the class of the field in in Belgrade two and avenged his loss at Belgrade one. By the way, Rublev and Djokovic's quarter, Oslan Karatsev in that area as well, who's um, arguably just as good as Rublev on this surface. I mean, yeah. you can debate that, but it's kind of apples to oranges. Uh, let's move on to Nadal, who probably had the most trouble out, or did have the most trouble out of the three of them, because. Popperin had set points in the third set. First two sets were were quite straightforward. Uh double fault for Alexi Popperin, a missed overhead on set point. Um, and the double fault was on set point as well, if I didn't make that clear. But Nadal escapes. I thought his his aura kind of helped him because Popperin did not, just couldn't, just couldn't close there. He, he didn't have it in the third set. Nadal came back straight set victory for Rafa, but also a a lot of positive signs in his game and and played pretty well. What did you think, Amy? Uh,
1: That, the how many times have we seen it before? Someone um, fold like a lawn chair when, you know, they can take a set off Rafael Nadal on clay or, it's, in some ways, it's frustrating. I mean, I'm a big Nadal fan. And, and I actually really wanted to see him win. Um, but in some ways, I, I was frustrated when I saw him not be able to convert those set points. Um, it's hard to explain why. I just think that um, I, I'm, I'm anxious to see the next generation um, do something great. And uh, that was a missed opportunity, even though it was pretty clear he wasn't going to win the match.
0: Well, Popperin is by far of the three first-round losers, the one with the greater upside. He's 21. The other ones are kind of like reach some of where they're going to be, whether it's Istamin or Sandgren. I'm, I'm not looking to see either of them become top 15 players. Popperin is 21 years old. He won the French Juniors four years ago. Nadal speaks very highly of him. And, yeah, and for a while here the, here in this match in the early part of the third he kind of, what, found a little bit of the visions of Robin Soderling, you know, going after balls, hitting big, doing the things he needed to do and showing uh, this guy, this could be something at some point, but not just yet. You're right. And it would have been interesting to see him take it into a fourth because I think yeah, fourth sets are really interesting. I love fourth sets because it's the, the, the guy who's up two sets to one wants out of there. And then the other guy is wanting to take it. So I love seeing when you see a fourth set get into that three-all, four-all stage and it's hanging right in balance. But it didn't happen. And once Nadal got off the hook, the set points he ran right through the tie break he went up 6-1 quickly and and you could see the, the window it shut but Hopper and I, we're going to be we're going to be seeing more of him in mean, 21 years old he's already 63 in the world so it's pretty good
1: you know every year I look at the um the serving at the French Open to see if you know maybe this year it's it's a little more of a factor than it was last year due to heat or conditions or whatever and knowing that Paparin is such a big server and to see him go out like that I'm like well once again I just question how much impact the serve is going to have this year
0: oh you mean the tournament overall
1: yeah just overall I, I look and see how the big servers are doing and he's one of them I had had marked.
0: Yeah. Well, it's if Nadal no has learned anything, if we've learned anything from Nadal at Roland Garros, among the hundred things we've learned, it, it's that yeah, the big servant, a dollar will buy you a croissant.
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, that's pretty good in Paris.
2: <laughs> well, Isner took him to five, and people love to bring that up and talk about it because it was yeah, like I, I was at that match. I, was,
0: I, I saw that one. That was that was an interesting. That was an interesting day at the beach was that was, uh, that was, I believe that was 2011. Yeah. That was a while ago. That was so amazing about these guys. Again, just to see it, just the stretching of the years. I mean, of this, of not just, not just plausible performances into the thirties, but great performances beyond that. I mean, 10 years ago. Yeah. Mm Nadal, right. Isner. Okay. And here. Yeah. Well done. Mm
2: -hmm. He's still going. Um, Tennis Channel showed a graphic after the first set which compared the height of the bounce of Nadal's forehand. And everyone talked about how with last year's French Open in October, colder conditions, lower bounce. Now we have our regular uh, spring slot and warmer conditions, higher bounce. Whoa, seven-inch difference in the bounce of of Rafa's forehand. (laughs) Um, Amy, what do you think of that?
1: Well, I looked at this with um, Shane Liange of uh, data-driven sports analytics. We looked at bounce height. We looked at temperature. Remember last year, the big controversy was the ball, new ball. Rafa doesn't like the ball. Rafa said something about the ball. We looked at ball brand. We looked at all these different sort of strange things that aren't mainstream. Did they have an impact? On Rafa's performance at Roland Garros over the years. And it's great because you've got such a huge sample size. And we found that none of these things had any impact, um, including temperature, you know, ball height, kind of ball that it is. None of them had any impact. He wins in all kinds of different conditions with all sorts of different scenarios, including ball bounce.
0: Those are great points about how nothing seems to deter. Nadal, they all, all these things affect his opponents, but it just shows how, just how great he is and what all this stuff matters or doesn't. And these things, I mean, I've been around enough of these terms to know some of these things I call like, uh, first two or three day stories, you know, the ball, the surface. And then after a while, okay, kids, we're all just playing tennis. It kind of evens out. These are pros. This isn't me showing up in the league playoffs, wondering if the court is truly north, south <laughs> or not. <laughs> so, and adjusting to it being, you know, 100 miles south of my normal sun. So these are pros.
2: Well, uh, Medvedev says he likes these clay courts. He doesn't like any of the other clay courts, but these ones he likes, Joel. So I'm just going to throw that out there. But a point well taken from both of you. Let's go to uh, the second round match. And uh, Rafa has Richard Gasquet, who he has a tremendous history with. Uh, 16 tour-level meetings. Nadal has won all 16. But it would be inaccurate to say that Richard Gasquet never beat Rafa Nadal. What am I referring to, Joel? Well,
0: you're referring to a term they played when they were very young, a junior tournament, and, and Gasquet won. Gasquet beat him yeah. there. And uh, but you know, I think there's there's a great case. I remember covering a match they played at Roland Garros three years ago and contemplating both of them. Gasquet's had a wonderful career, fine career. And it's just the difference in how each was raised. Gasquet was put on the cover of a tennis magazine in France when he was, I believe, nine years old as a protege. He already had the, the beautiful one-handed backhand that all of my friends who have one-handed backhands talk to me about, have talked for years. And now they talk about sits, sits the Pass and his one-hander. And um, Gasquet, though, that almost may have set him back because he was so told what a great player he could be. I think if Tony Nadal had gotten word that Rafa could have been on a cover of a magazine, he would have banned that from happening. He would have said, there's no way you're gonna be on the cover of a magazine. In fact, with that alone, you know what you should do? You should hand deliver magazines to everyone in the town. And I think there's just this whole approach to tennis. Gasquet's parents were pros. And and I think Gasquet, by now having played Federer 16 times, I hope on the 17th, maybe he'll serve in volley 10 times. I mean, if you lose to someone that many times in a row, who's that good on that surface? Maybe you try something different, or you just kind of okay, go about losing three, four, and two, and maybe you take a set further. I don't know what 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 what.
1: Coach he, Gasquet. Uh, I, Gasquet definitely knows where the ball is coming to the backhand, to the backhand, to the backhand. That's how Rafa plays one-handed backhand. So. Yeah. um, Moonball, you know, um, you can't really drop shot Rafa. I mean, what can you do to Rafa on clay?
0: I'll tell you something, but here's the thing. Here's how I look at the game. Here's how I look at the game. You're right. What can you do with Nadal versus on clay? But you go play someone who you're significantly overmatched with, who you've lost 16 times. Yeah, I can hit my shots. I can feel good. I'll be in a number of rallies and maybe... Yes, Gay, look, he's a pro. He might extend him to an overtime set. He might even grab a set. But do I want to, how to compete against him effectively? So now what I should do is empty the kitchen sink. Why not hit some kicksters and try some serve and volley? Now, granted, you're at the limits of your skills development. And this gets to the big thing about how players build their game. And this is why I so like players like Federer and why I like on the woman's side, I like Katie McNally, people who are building the broadest possible arsenal so when they have a chance to compete against someone who they're overmatched against, they might have some of these different, what shots in their arsenal they could do. So you're right. So otherwise Gasque is going to know, okay, Oh, here we go again. And Robert, Rob is going to say, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm aware of your beautiful backhand. go ahead hit a few winners. We know what's going on here. It's going to play out like old times again, isn't it? So
1: would you go as far as to underhand serve?
2: Would
0: yes. You- Absolutely, absolutely. Why not?
1: Would absolutely- you, Gil?
2: but 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 you know, uh, I, I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about Gaz K. <laughs> um, and I'm not going to accuse Gaz K uh, of this flat out. But but you know that there are a large portion of players who have these kinds of head to head with members of the Big Three, and they walk on the court resigned. We're not we're acknowledging that, right? That they're not—they don't really believe that they can win.
0: I wouldn't say resigned as much as pragmatic. That you're not, yeah, like sort of aware. They're 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 quite aware of that such history. That's true. I think
1: I think some of them go out there and think, boy, it would be really good if I could get a set or what can I do not to embarrass myself? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I think a lot of them have that in the back of their head. Well,
0: Gasquet has had, a, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's almost like we get Elizabeth Kubler Roth, the, the five stages of, of tennis life and death of that you go through, whether it's whether it's optimism, optimism, acceptance, denial, <laughs> we come up with, I should come up with a chart, but like Gasquet knows he's not gonna embarrass himself. In fact. Innovation—that's why he doesn't want to innovate because that makes him think he's gonna embarrass himself. He'll—he yeah. won't embarrass himself if he loses three, two, and three, and it's a fair match. He's a pro. He's not gonna embarrass himself by losing. He's not gonna get triple bagels. And what if the- he loses one, two, and
1: one? Is that yeah, embarrassing? It's
0: unfortunate. It's, no, it's a—but it's rough. It's clay, and he's too good. And I did my game. I, I remember seeing that. I've seen that numerous times. Instead of like, hey, open the box. You beat me sixteen straight times. I gotta try something. I'm gonna serve for the doubles alley. I'm gonna come in on your return. I'm gonna just try a bunch of things and just, just, and I think, it, I, I, yeah, this is my way of, of properly regarding you.
2: It feels scary to people to do that. I think you know, it's, it does, it's just, it, it feels scary.
0: Of course it's, but it's like, absolutely, it feels scary. I think it's gotta it, be it was, brave. It was scarier walking around with a mask for six months. <laughs> I mean,
2: think right, about it. Right. Yeah. Hey. So, uh, you guys, um, have you watched any footage of the 13-year-old Nadal Gasquet match? I, I tweeted it out today. I saw okay. some
0: of. Yeah, it's, it's fun.
2: Well, I will. I will say this: the my biggest takeaway. Gasquet's game is beautiful, even at 13 years old. But my biggest takeaway was how far behind Nadal's serve was from the rest of his game. I'm stunned. I mean, his serve was really bad technically as a 13-year-old. The rest of his game, pretty, pretty beautiful, pretty great. But clearly, like the serve just wasn't valued. It was just okay. Start the point. He didn't use his legs. He was kind of uh, f- going backwards uh, right. away from the court instead of into the court. I mean, it was a real mess. And to a lesser extent, that's kind of how he entered the tour as a as a teenager as well, with the serve way behind the rest of his game. So, yeah Yo, you that got fast.
0: the. Uh... You got the Chris Lewitt uh, Spanish background. I'm going to keep hammering on you this for the next 20 years. What's the approach to the serve in that world?
2: It's uh, it's de-emphasized a little bit. Um, you know, you have to hit a kick serve. I'd say that's emphasized. Second serve, accelerate, hit it as hard as you can. Kick serve, need it. Righty backhand, but the the development of the serve is kind of the Win the point outright weapon, not really a thing. It's more how of about a protect the, you know, yourself.
0: How about the development of the serve as a gain a little traction to start the point? You know, I mean, instead of how, instead of, if yeah. you look at the serve as first down, instead of the serve getting you to second and eight, how about the serve getting you to second and five?
2: Well, I think with the development of the forehand as a, as the, your primary weapon, I think the serve comes into play there. Uh, ideally, I just no, think again. It's
0: the one. I'm not talking about the serve plus one. I'm talking about the serve itself. I guess the clay is such a, such a neutralizer that it's kind of like, yeah. why am I even doing this? So that's kind of interesting. And the young Rafa had that, but he's, you know, now it, it, it's very much for him. And we'll be talking about this more in the shows to come. The serve plus one, the combo.
2: And I think it's changing, by the way. And I, I, I'm not on the grounds in Spain, but I do think that they're starting to. Uh, modernize and start to look at the serve differently and emphasize it more. Um, all right. Federer versus Chilich, Amy.
1: Yeah, these guys have some history, right? Yeah, a lot of um, it. I mean, I. Uh, Chilich has been a big server. I'm not sure what he's doing right now. Um, but again, we've talked in the show about how. That's not really a factor. And um, Chilich certainly isn't the player that he has been when these two players have met in the past. I always think of the Wimbledon final in 2017 where Roger crushed him and it was heartbreaking. But this is interesting because they're both a little bit not who they have been.
0: Well, right, and Chilich though, I'm a little, I, I've always liked Chilich. I've liked his work ethics. I've liked his game. I've liked his back. And he's, he's a lot. He's, a, he's one of the players I find he's um, a little, he's a lot more fun to watch play in person than he is on television. Some, I, I find him more, some players, there isn't as wide a gap, but when I've seen Chilich play in person, I find him very dynamic. And I remember seeing him in Australia the year he got to the finals and he extended Federer to five sets in that final. Um, when he won the U.S. Open, beat Federer in the semis. That's his only win. Against Federer's one and nine. I, I was there.
2: I was at wow. that one. Yes.
0: Yeah, so oh, we both. Well, there we go. So yeah, it's pretty neat. But um, and he I, I expected after that 14 U.S. Open win, I expected him to be more in the hunt, more often. And a series of things. It didn't quite. It hasn't quite exactly gone that way. I mean, I'm I'm not exactly sure. But uh, I think for this match though, I don't know. Clay Chilich is another guy who seems to do better on. He needs the speed of the hard court. It's, it's, but yeah. I don't know. This is, this is where we start to see signs of Roger. I mean, let's say they split the first two sets. Now we begin to see Roger's fitness and match play more.
2: Yeah, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that kind of test. It's certainly going to be uh, a test, uh, a bigger test than Istvan because Chilich has firepower and weapons. Uh, it's just there's been a lot of errors recently, and Chilich has struggled to win matches even when he's put himself in winning positions. Uh, because he's really, really struggled over the last two, three years, ever since really Wimbledon 2018. He was a three seed and he lost to Guido Pela in one in the early rounds. And he was supposed to do damage in that tournament coming off the final. And that was, for some reason, a turning point in his career. He never had great results after mm. that. It's the nerve management that I think have, has gone out the window for Chilich and in, in big spots He's missing, and he just seems nervous uh, towards the end of his career. In the beginning of, in the beginning and the middle of his career, he was handling those moments, and that's what has really left him.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting, and it made me think as you said that about sort of this. You know, we're looking at the three, and we talk about these contenders, but there are these these generations of people who've like, you know, tilted against the greats, and then they haven't, and then they, you know, whether it's Sangha or Burdick, and and. Ferrer at least kind of brought it all in because he, of his playing style. But the ones with the with the bigger weapon games, they kind of huffed and they puffed and they couldn't blow the big three down. And then they just kind of like, Egh. and maybe that's for you as <laughs> a sort of resignation because at, at least Ferrer had his eternal hustle that never let him down. So that was, he just kept on grinding. And even he, and even he, that reached the stage where even he found his empty mark. But it's just, it's just interesting you could almost do you could almost chronicle these these multiple generations, and it's like nothing in tennis history because these guys have lasted at the top so long.
2: I've heard Chrissy and Martina talk about how they got more nervous towards the end of their careers um because they they kind of would think in the back of their mind, oh how many more chances will I have and I say this kind of not to. To make a point about Chilich, but to also appreciate what our three have done thus far, where maybe maybe Federer's had some some moments here and there where the the nerves have have gotten to him in a way that's been detrimental. But for the most part, these guys have have maintained their steely nerve management in big matches, and their record in major finals is what you would point to 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 kind of prove that.
1: Well, Federer was asked after the Istaman match, what's more important confidence or experience? And he said, for sure, confidence. So uh, it doesn't appear that Chilich has a lot of confidence going right now.
0: I would say that, but I would also say, you know, Roger Federer, that guy, he's kind of amazing. And yet it's like, yeah, that'd be one of those things hearing that is, yeah, he said that. What's that mean? Well, where do you get confidence? Well, experience helps. I mean, I mean, it's like, it's sort, of like the way, it's sort of like the way I was telling a coach once. I said, yeah, process this and process that. But, you know, nothing really validates the process better than good outcomes. So Roger mm-hmm. can kind of, what, make experience number two, but golly, he and make confidence number one because he can kind of wax on it, but he's had a lot of good experiences
1: I think reps help confidence too, you know, well, and he's starting to get his reps up now.
2: Totally.
0: Oh, but reps reps is in also like, how about the other 50 slam semis and finals? You know what yeah, I mean?
1: true. Yeah. The,
0: the, the, the piggy bank, it's bigger than a piggy bank, right? It's a frig, I mean, if you like, if you every player's experience confidence as this sort of like bank account, maybe that's our study of like, you come up with multiplier percentages it's sort of like the way I came up with this thing called the the Grand Slam Multiplier Club. Winning one Slam is one, but two is four, three is nine. You see what I mean? Like each Slam, it's yeah. it's a multiplier. So 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 in a way, Feder has a four hundred factor on his Slams. You see, which is tremendous. Good
2: experience, right? Good experience builds confidence. <laughs> Bad experience doesn't. Let's throw that qualifier in there. Uh, Djokovic Cuevas. Um, this will uh, be the first meeting between those two. What do you think of Pablo Cuevas, Joel?
0: He's an interesting player. He plays well. He's done well. He's had some results. He's challenged people. It, it's kind of, that's a little more intriguing. Again, it's, it's mm-hmm. nice to see how as we advance through the draw, you know, a little more tougher test. I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm interested to see that match. So I think you know, Novak, Novak is so reliable. That's the thing with him. I find him so relentlessly reliable.
2: I agree. I, Cuevas is a is a shot maker. That's where the flare is going to come from, which is going to be fun to watch because Novak's always so good at trying to neutralize and take those blows and to kind of um, throw the flames back where they came from. So we will talk to you guys soon. That'll do it for this episode of Three as the Big Three move on to the second round. All three of them straight sets, nine and zero, oh, perfect. Make sure that you are following and subscribing on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Leave a rating and review on Apple. Like the video and comment on YouTube. We will see you next time on the next episode of Thrift.